Welcome to the Desert City Church podcast. We're so glad you tuned in. You're about to hear a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. Our desire is to follow Jesus, love others well, and experience the life that is truly life. These sermons help form us into the kind of people God created us to be. With grace and patience, we live with hope-filled lives here in Phoenix. We hope this message inspires you. If you have any questions or things we can pray for, feel free to reach out to us at info at desertcitychurch.com. Okay, as you come in and grab a seat, I wanted to give an update. Um, Many of you know uh, that we are in the process of trying to find more permanent space for Desert City. And we are the recipients of a gift from Christ Church of the Valley. Um, We we found out kind of what, what they're going to do for us, and we're excited about that. Um, but we don't have all the details around necessarily um, how we access it. And so we've been waiting to release this report to you. We just don't have all the details yet, so it's coming soon. Um, we thought we'd have it by this week. We don't have it yet. Um, but we're, we're very excited. We're very excited for uh, what's about to happen. Um, so I just want to let you know it's coming. It's just not quite there yet. So um, we're finishing off a series today called Disciple. And we've been looking at kind of seven marks of followers of Jesus and uh, I, I wanted to do a quick review before we jump in, um, but over the last really month and a half, we've talked about how like, those who follow Jesus have a holy calling, that, that Jesus calls us. He initiates this relationship where he says, come and follow me, be my disciple. Um, and we have this relationship with Jesus. Is there feedback? Can you hear me? Yes. A little bit? Okay, we good? doesn't matter how many times we sound check. It's always like something. Yes, good? Okay, so holy calling. Second is just that this... We are humbly surrendered. Um, uh, to, we, we give our lives uh, to Jesus and say, Lord, uh, do, use my life. Do, do, do with, with it what you would like to. Um, biblically formed, um, we, we are students of Scripture. The scripture is something that is God's word. It forms our lives. Empowered witness, my dad talked about this uh, when he spoke here about how um, the Spirit empowers us to be his witness uh, uh, here on earth. Countercultural influence, how we're called to live holy, set-apart lives uh, for the good of the world. And then last week, Caleb spoke about being relationally healthy and how a church is made up of a diverse people and it's messy, and at the same time, there's something beautiful that comes out of uh, just the messiness of life and community. And the, the, the thing that unites us is Jesus. And all of the different ways that we're divided, Jesus unites us. When Jesus rises from the dead, he gathers his disciples together, and he tells them that all authority on heaven and in, in, in heaven and on earth have been given to him. And he gives them this commission. He says, go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey what I have commanded. So there's this call to discipleship from Jesus for the church. If you want to know like, what a mission statement for a church is, it's we are people who are disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And discipleship is this process of where we're becoming more like Jesus and therefore more like the people that God has intended for us to be. And he says uh, to teach them to obey uh, what, I, what I've commanded and what I've taught. And today I want to look at one of these teachings of Jesus that gives us kind of the seventh mark of discipleship. And the teaching is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of Jesus' most popular teachings the first part of it, we know it as the Beatitudes. Um, but then the second half of it, there's, there's a number of topics that Jesus speaks into. And he's basically talking about this is kind of the ethics of the kingdom of God. This is how we live. And it's very different than the world. And he, he brings up this topic in Matthew chapter 6. And I want to start in verse 19. And I'll just read through this. 
Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vernum destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vernum do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one or love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And you cannot serve both God and money. This is a a conversation about possessions, about what we own. And I typically, uh, as a young pastor, never like to talk about this topic of money because I felt like I would offend people and they'd be mad at me and it's such a sensitive topic. And as I've gotten a little bit older, um, what I'm starting to realize is that when when Scripture gives us uh, and, and wants to form us into certain practices with our resources, it's not because it wants to control us. It's because it wants to give us life that is truly life, life that is joyful, life that has meaning. And what I found is, like, this is a topic for most people that you don't think of a whole lot of joy with. You think of uncertainty, fear, stress, anxiety, burdens. And yet Jesus speaks about it so often. And if you're new today, we do, like, three sermons a year on money, so welcome. Um, We had someone who uh, visited, and I spoke on this, and then they came back, like, they were gone for, like, six months, and they came back, and I did it again, and they were like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, But a couple things, as we talk about this passage that Jesus is speaking into, some of it, like, makes sense, some of it's kind of confusing. Um, A couple myths uh, about this topic is, one, um, when we we talk about, like, money, money isn't just something that's evil. I think it's Dave Ramsey that talks about it's amoral, Right? Like, he would use the example of a brick. A brick is amoral. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing evil about it. But you could take it, and you could do something good. You could build a house with it. Or you could take it and throw it through a window, and it's something destructive. And when when Jesus is talking about money, um, he doesn't say money's evil. Paul warns us that the the love of money is the root of evil, but there's nothing inherently evil about it. And so sometimes there's messages that, uh, you know, God doesn't want us to be wealthy or to have, like, possessions. And, and we've seen, like, great saints who have taken these vows of poverty. Um, but then there's another message that I would say is a myth is that, that God wants you to be rich. And so if you do X, Y, and Z, he'll make you extremely wealthy. And, and uh, the truth is, is that um, w- when it comes to our resources, here, here's what I think that, that God really wants is, one, he wants to, us to know and recognize where is it that we put our hope? Where is it that we put our hope? And two, where do we derive our joy from? Where do we find joy? Where do we place our hope? And where do we find joy? There's three uh, wealthy people in scripture that interact with Jesus. And I think it kind of helps illustrate this. One is the rich young ruler. We don't know what his name is. He's just the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he has all these questions about the kingdom of God and heaven and what he must do. And they have this conversation. And he ends up leaving Jesus sad. And Jesus talks about how he has to, to, to basically sell all that he has. And I think what is happening is Jesus is looking at his heart and he realizes there's something about this guy that he, he has put his hope in the wrong thing. Then there's another very wealthy man named Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. 
We know that he's a tax collector. Uh, he has this encounter with Jesus, and it's transforming. It transforms his heart. It transforms his life. And Jesus says, to follow me, I would like you to give back half of what you've been given. And what we find is, you know, Zacchaeus is this tax collector. His wealth has come from taking advantage of people. And so there's a certain cost that comes with following Jesus. And then when Jesus goes to the cross and his body is taken down off the cross, Scripture tells us that there's a certain rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Joseph from Arimathea. A certain rich man who purchases a place to put Jesus' body. And what we find is that this wealthy man is a disciple. He has become a follower of Jesus, and he's still wealthy. And whatever has happened with him in his relationship with Jesus, Jesus hasn't demanded that he gives up all of it or half of it. There's no percentage. And I think when you think about these three different characters in Scripture, Jesus probably looks into their heart, and he understands, here's where you've placed your hope. Here's where you're finding your joy. And for some people, this is an issue that you, there's going to be more demanded of you. For other people, you are handling this well. You are a good steward. You, are, you get it. You are using uh, this uh, money uh, not, not as something that you worship, but as something that you are simply a steward of. And so there's no, like, just classic example of who gets what. And, and what I say is Jesus wants to know, where do you place your hope? Where do you find your joy? In this passage, uh, he, he starts off with this, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth, and, and it says where vernum destroys. Another uh, translation would say where rust can destroy. Um, and he starts off in verse 19 with a prohibition. Don't do this. Don't just invest in things that are temporary. Don't put your hope in things that are temporary. My wife and I got married uh, in 04. I graduated college in 05. I got married really young. Um, and we bought a house in 06. If you are, if you remember anything that happened around that time period in 08, uh, this is how we started life together. So out of college, yay, marriage, buy a house, and then all of a sudden, the reality of life hit pretty quickly. How, how quickly life can change and how much that could rock your world when everything just collapses around you. Jesus says, do not just store up for yourself treasures on earth where the stock market could crash, the housing market could crash, because when all of your hope is in something like that, it is absolutely devastating. Then he goes on to say this, though, a positive command, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vernum do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. So it starts with a, a prohibition, then moves to this positive thing. Here's what you can pour your life into. And here's the reason, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this heart issue that Jesus is talking about, where we place our hope, where we find our identity, where we find security, where we have despair. Jesus is saying, this is a heart issue. This is a heart issue. And what Jesus understands is there's something mysteriously idolatrous about our possessions. Again, it's not good, it's not bad, but there's just something that is just mysteriously idolatrous about it. And Jesus says, I want you to put your hope and trust in God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. There's an old story of uh, uh, this king back in the first century after um, Jesus had died. His name is Monabaz, and he, he comes from some of the, one of the Persian kingdoms, and we don't hear a lot about kind of that part of the world. It seems like most of the early church, we talk about like, you know, what, what Paul's doing in Acts and in Europe. 
Um, but, but this was a wealthy king um, who uh, had uh, received a great inheritance from his father, had some brothers that were rulers as well. And um, I think the story has it that there's some sort of like famine that breaks out in his, his, uh, the country that he's ruling over and realizes that people are in great need. People are suffering. Um, people, people just need basic like food and water, that kind of thing. And so he starts to use his inheritance to, to meet the needs in his community. And he's, he's building all of these different uh, places for people to find refuge, for pl- pl- people to find relief. And he's pouring his inheritance into it. And his brothers come to him and they say, this is crazy. What are you doing? Why aren't you building a, a palace for yourself or, or building something? And he has this conversation with them where he says, I am building a palace, but it's a different kind of palace. There's something else that is happening here. And he, he has the, the quote that he says, my father stored up uh, below, but I am storing for things above. My father stored in a place which can't, can be tampered with, but I have stored in a place which cannot be tampered with. My father's gathered treasures of money. I have gathered treasures of souls. And my father's gathered uh, for this world, and I have gathered for the future world. Now, again, I don't think everyone's called to do something like this, but I think what's interesting about the early church is there was this urgency to say the things that we are building there are things that are temporary, and there are things that are eternal. And there was this urgency to say, we want to pour our lives into the things that are eternal, to give to things that are eternal. And Jesus says, we place our hope in eternity, not just things that are temporary. And things that are temporary are not bad. It's about where your hope is, and it's about where your joy comes from. I love what John Wesley said about the use of money. He says, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. I think that's a great perspective, to earn all you can, to save all you can, and to give all you can. Um, and, and my hope is that uh, when it comes to, to these resources and what Jesus is teaching us is that we're just healthy about it. We're healthy. So Jesus says, don't put your hope in things that are etern- or temporary, put them in an eternal. And then he goes on to say this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What in the world does that mean? Uh, You read it again and again, and you're like, okay, what is going on here? Well, this, uh, which follows uh, this thing about the eternal and the temporary, this is a Hebrew idiom. Do we understand what idioms are? Idioms are this collective of words that derive their meaning from context rather than what those words mean kind of individually. Uh, so like uh, English, it, here's some English idioms, like it's been raining cats and dogs, right? It's uh, I can see the light, uh, kick the bucket. Like it, my, my father-in-law's from England, he might say something like Bob's your uncle, <laughs> which nobody knows what that means, but uh, if you're from England, you do, like that makes sense. Um, some of you know Fernando Hernandez. Uh, Fernando, I don't think he's here today, which I'll have to give him a guilt trip about that. But uh, <laughs> Fernando, uh, you know, recently became a U.S. citizen. Um, what, his story is amazing. He's been here for 10 years. He learned the language of English after he was like 30. Um, he was just back home uh, for, for Christmas and kind of came back. So I was catching up with him. We hadn't seen each other for a while. Went over to Barrio Queen to get some chips and guac, as you do. And uh, we're having this conversation. As we walked into Barrio Queen, there's a shirt at Barrio Queen, and it had this phrase on it. And I don't know if we have any Spanish-speaking people here today. I hope I don't offend you. Uh, but the phrase says, a todo madre. And I was reading that, and I'm like, madre, that means mother. And 
I'm like, what does that mean? And I, I said, Fernando, like, all these t-shirts have this phrase on it. Like, what does this phrase mean? And Fernando was like, well, I can't really explain it. And I'm like, why not? And I'm like, I think I know what it means. And he goes through all these different explanations of it. And he's explaining it. It clicks in my mind what it means. And I'm like, oh, it means that you're a, I can't say it here. <laughs> and I'm like, that's what it means. He goes, no, that's not what it means. And I'm like, that's totally what it means. And he's like, no, it's not what it means. And, and then like our server came out. And the, the, the guy that was serving our table is like this total bro from like Old Town. And I was like, oh, total madre, what does that mean? He goes, it means that you're a... And he says it, and I'm like, I knew it! And Fernando's like, no, it's not what it means. And so, like, Fernando's like, it's a phrase that can be used to mean a lot of different things. And he sent me this video about how it has, like, five different di meanings. And, like, sometimes we, we forget language. These idioms that we have are kind of hard to understand. And Jesus is speaking an idiom here. This is his Hebrew idiom, and he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Again, this is a rough translation, but for the Hebrews, they thought that uh, the eye was the window into your soul. The eye was the window into what was going on inside of you. They also had, uh, I was reading, there, there's some, some understandings that like light came from inside your eyes and it was projected out. But, but basically what this is saying is, is this, that uh, if your eye uh, is, is healthy and if your eye is good, you're generous. And if your eyes are unhealthy or bad, you're stingy. And so what it's saying is that if you are generous, your whole body will be full of light. And I started, I started thinking about that, just the, the visual of that, a body that is full of light. Generous people are radiant. Their whole body is full of light. What, what's coming from out, from inside of them just bursts forth. Generosity is a character of God. And as we are disciples becoming more like Jesus, something inside of us becomes more and more generous. We're a body full of light. This thing that is inside of us shines out of grace, of gifts, of using our resources as a blessing. And I would say this is the seventh mark of a disciple. Someone who is joyfully generous. Someone who is joyfully generous. We serve a generous God. The more we get to know our God, the more we become like what Jesus has called us to, the more we become generous as people. We become this body full of light that shines for others. Generosity, this defining mark of a follower of Jesus. We become generous. Uh, and I say joyfully generous because there are people who can be generous and it's done out of uh, maybe guilt. Maybe they feel like they have to be. Or maybe it's done out of trying to get something in return. But joyful givers, people that just joyfully give, is that there's this light inside of us and it just shines through us. We joyful givers. A couple things about generosity. Um, generosity takes many different forms. Uh, I think that we are individually should be generous with our resources um, because we, we are uh, stewards of what God has given us. And one of the ways that we do that in the church is when we take offering on Sunday, you kind of wonder, like, what's going on there? Maybe you're new to church. Um, why do they do that? Is there some sort of reason behind it? 
Um, is there, and, 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 and kind of our understanding of, of offering and this generosity is that this is an old spiritual discipline. It was derived thousands of years ago for God's people. And it was put in place for a couple different reasons. We have the offerings and we have this thing called the tithe. And if you haven't been around church very often, it sounds pretty radical. Like, why would you do that? And when it was put in place, it wasn't something that was done radically, but it was something to, that was done to say uh, a couple of things. One is that all these religions of the ancient world would require an insane amount of offering for you to appease the gods. And then in the Old Testament, what we find is this, this God that says, you don't have to do all that to keep me happy. This tithe comes from Leviticus 27.30. Just to read this, it says, A tithe of everything from the Lord, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy. It is holy to the Lord, this offering that we give. I hear that phrase, and I'm like, there's a certain weight to that. When we, when we give of our offering, it's something that is holy to the Lord, set apart for him. And whoever would redeem any of their uh, tithe must add a fifth in, of the value to it. And every tithe of the herd of the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. This idea of a tenth of what we have. Uh, one of our sister churches in Ahwatukee, they did this video, it was a total spoof, um, like a parody, that they had set up like this tithing program with their church. And uh, the tithing program was like, if you tithe through like this certain website, uh, you have a tenth, tenth of what you have, then they kick a tenth of that back to you, it's like a discount tithe. And then you take that tithe and you give like a tenth back to them. And then they kick that back to you. And it was like, I was watching it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I could never show this. I'd be, you know, it's too like sensitive of a thing. But it was hilarious. And like we get caught up on this number. But there's, there's something here. Uh, what, what Jesus is, not what Jesus, what, what the Old Testament scripture is telling us is that this is a spiritual practice that forms our heart. It forms our heart. It reminds us where our hope is. It reminds us that we are investing first and foremost in things that are eternal to God. Uh, this, another instruction is given in Deuteronomy 14 and another is given in Malachi 3. And when you hear these, you know, kind of one of the arguments is that, well, this is kind of part of the Old Covenant. This is Old Testament. And like, yes, there was this covenant, there was this law uh, that was uh, put in place in the Old Testament where we had this relationship with God. But one of the things that I would, I would say that we should consider is that this is ancient wisdom. The ancients had this understanding of how, uh, how wealth and our resources could be something that's so enticing for us to worship, to put our hope in, to put our identity in. And there was something here that, that is for us that forms us to be a certain kind of person that says, I don't have to just live off of everything that I make. I'm not defined by my... Uh, the total amount of what I own. There was something intentional that was a, a, a practice, a discipline that was put in place. And we, even though this isn't part of like this new covenant, there's an understanding that, that this old thing that helped form our practices in this world, this wisdom, we shouldn't just neglect it now out of a reason that we want to justify our own spending habits. I think we should take it seriously. At the same time, there's freedom in it. And Jesus speaks about this tithe in the New Testament. And when Jesus speaks about tithing, what happens is so often we get caught up on a certain number and a certain percentage, and it becomes very ritualistic, and it just we become legalistic about it, and it can harden our heart. And Jesus says this about the tithe um, in Matthew. He's speaking to 
the teachers of the law. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices and mint and, and dill and cumin, which I don't even know what those are, um, but they're, they're doing it. So, uh, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so Jesus speaks of an, another kind of danger that when it becomes all about like this percentage or this number, it becomes ritualistic. We become legalistic about it. We might even become entitled about it. And yet at the same time, we're neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. And what Jesus is saying is there's these things that we've put in place as spiritual practices that form us. And at the same time, if we get like the cart in front of the horse, it could actually like harden our heart and do something else inside of us that could be dangerous as well. But what Jesus does is he says these matters that are important of justice and mercy and faithfulness, the things that like your heart does with the people around you, he says uh, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So he's saying do justice, do mercy. This relational thing that we, we have with the people around us, that's what matters. But he doesn't just throw away this old practice either. But he says, if you're going to do it, this is always about your heart, where you place your hope, where you find your joy, how you are stewards of these gifts. And Jesus says, don't do the practice the first with neglecting the former. And he calls them you blind guides. Jesus has some like really mean things to say about people sometimes. But, um, uh, so there's this idea of, there's this ancient practice that we do. Um, it's part of the Old Testament, but it's a really good guide for us to say uh, is this cultivating a heart of compassion in us? Is this us saying we put our hope in God, not in just our own possessions? We find our joy in giving, not just in consuming. There's something for us here. And then Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And that that. Uh, verse that we put up during offering, everyone should consider what they should give and do so cheerfully. I was reading the Greek word for cheerfully. It says hysterically. Like this is something that we do joyfully to give. Joyfully to give. To say, Lord, I'm going to honor you first with my first fruits. And it says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So this is like farmer talk. And I am not a farmer. I went to school in Indiana. I'm from Phoenix. Um, but here's one thing I can grow really well. Rye grass in the wintertime. And I am very proud about this because I can't fix the toilet. I can't fix the car. I can't hang uh, pictures straight in the house. Um, the one thing I can do around the house really well is grow rye grass in the wintertime. And for whatever reason, and I enjoy doing this, last year I decided to hire someone to do it. Um, and as I had hired someone to do it, we started negotiating uh, a price on what it would cost for them to, you know, plant rye seed in my yard. And I didn't like the price he wanted to do it for. So I negotiated him down. I felt really good about myself. What I didn't realize is that all he probably did was, like, put less seed out there. And so, like, you know, you, like, you put your grass out, like, covered with, like, the fertilizer. It's fallen phoenix. And then all these weird patches start coming up. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, I could have done a better job myself, and I'm not even a professional. And I was so frustrated. And I thought about this, like, this passage, you know what? You reap what you sow, and they didn't throw out very much seed, and that's why we have a problem. <laughs> but then I started thinking about, wait a second, I probably totally offended this person 
drove down the price, thinking, feeling really good about myself. I'm reaping what I sow, and the lawn stinks this year. <laughs> the lawn's terrible. Um, and so this year I went back, and I was like, I'm going to do it right. And I threw out even more and more seed. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. There's something here. There's a, a, a principle. Again, this isn't law, but there's this principle of the way that we are generous with what God has given us. We reap what we sow. And it can be a confusing message because uh, what, what we sow, uh, what we reap from what we sow can look all, like all sorts of different things. When God kind of honors our stewardship, it might look like a whole lot of different things, but God gives us what he knows we need, the blessings that come from God. Here's a couple things uh, that we do for, for giving. One, um, we give cheerfully. Uh, as I, God, God loves a cheerful giver. And what I found is that there's, there's, uh, as, we, as we become generous, uh, what happens is we think like our world shrinks, like our finances shrink. Oh, my goodness, this is scary. But really, it enlarges our world. It enlarges our heart. It connects us to people's stories. Um, we give rhythmically. There's this, this practice, this discipline. I think that's kind of what was going on there with the tithe is there's this, this rhythm, rhythm to it of honoring God with worshiping him. Uh, giving of your first fruits. Um, this is something for, for Marcy and I that has become a big deal is when we uh, receive something to honor God with the first fruits of what we receive. Uh, to give a tithe is that we've talked about that. And then to give sacrificially, um, to give sacrificially. I love what uh, Billy Graham uh, says about, uh, about the tithe. Uh, he says, uh, we have found in our home that as uh, have thousands of others that God's blessing uh, upon the nine tenths when we tithe helps it go farther than the ten tenths without his blessing. This is what Billy Graham says. When we are generous, when we honor God, there's, we just, what happens with the nine-tenths goes so much further than with the ten-tenths. And then give sacrificially. Um, so I, I think that we should be generous, and this is done through the context of church, but more than that, there, there's so much need in this world that we give to. We live in a world of brokenness. We live in a world of suffering, of lack of and the church is the hope of the world. When it happens corporately, uh, I want to end with this story. Uh, one of my friends is a pastor in uh, Ohio at a church called Salem, uh, just outside of Dayton. And they had uh, this desire uh, to meet some of the needs in their community. And what they found out is that one of the local school districts had all sorts of debt for lunches for their children. So under resource area, kids uh, are, are basically taking on debt to have lunches in their schools each year. So they said, we know this school district, and one of the things that we can do, the generosity is a bo- as a body of believers, is to meet the debt. They found that debt was $14,000. So the church decided, we're going to pay the debt for all of these, these children from these under-resourced families. So they could have lunch at a public school. And they ended up raising $40,000 for this. Um, so... They open it up, and they end up paying off the debt of nine different school districts in the area. This is the power of a church has when people are generous. There's great power when the body of Christ can say, here's needs in our community, and we can meet it. And that happens when people commit to doing stuff like that. There's a body full of light. There's also uh, giving individually where we meet the needs around us. And this is something when we live in community together, when we understand what we're going through, it's not just something where we give handouts, but it's like because of our accountability and community together, we can help each other well. 
And that happens in the context of a loving church community. We are a generous people. We are a body full of light. The seventh mark of discipleship is those who are joyfully generous. This is the type of life that Jesus invites us to, to be generous. Tim's going to come back up and close us, and then we're going to take an offering. Just kidding. We're not going to take an offering. Um, when, we talk, when we talk about resources like this, we never want this to be something that's manipulative. We never want this to be something that's guilt. We believe that the scripture forms us to a life that is full and abundant and joyful, that our hope is in something eternal, that we worship our creator. And the invitation today is to say, we want you to be a body full of light, generous people. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this series of the life that you called us to, Lord, that just looks so much different than um, the life of those around us. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's hard. That you call us to a life that is a life to the full. A life where true life is found. And you call us to be a certain kind of people, a particular people in this community that is a body full of light. And we live in a dark world, Lord. And we, as we consider the darkness of our, of our neighborhoods, of our community, of our city, we know that you have given us resources to make this world a better place. We want to be good stewards of that. We want to worship you with our resources. We want to be... Uh, a community that is leveraged for the good. And sometimes when we have these conversations about money, Lord, it's a sensitive subject. Sometimes it's painful. Um, we have reasons to be cynical. Yet you invite us to a life that is so much bigger than just uh, our own. You connect us to a mission and a story that is so much bigger. So Taylor, I just pray that you would, uh, you would meet our needs. You would give us peace. And you would encourage us to be a body full of light. In your sons, let me pray. Amen.